Welcome to the New Books Network. The Tabernacle Narrative comprises passages in Exodus and Leviticus that detail the construction, furnishing, and liturgical use of the tabernacle. Given its genre and style, the narrative is often passed over by those reading Scripture for theological insight. What does Israel's tabernacle mean for Christians today? Join us as Gary Anderson shows how these passages shed light on incarnation and atonement, both in ancient Israel's theology and in Christian theology. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Gary A. Anderson is Hesburgh Professor of Catholic Thought at the University of Notre Dame. His previous books include Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, Sin, A History, and Christian Doctrine in the Old Testament, Theology in the Service of Biblical Exegesis. Gary, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Gary, let's get started by having you tell us a bit about yourself. So, I've been a student of the Bible, that is, the academic study of the Bible, for quite some time. I, uh, my interest began when I was an undergraduate in the late 70s, uh, continued through my master's degree at Duke, and then eventually a PhD. Um, I began as a uh, Protestant, grew up in a uh, mainstream denomination, the United Methodists, though in college I attended, you might want to say, more evangelically oriented, you know, Christian groups. Uh, eventually, in the course of my adult life, I became Catholic. Um, uh, a lot of my research, of course, has Catholic undertones, but I would want to emphasize that certainly for me, perhaps the most influential biblical scholar in terms of my own work would be uh, the great Protestant scholar, Brevard Childs of Yale University. So I like to think of myself as <clears throat> ecumenical in character and in tone. Your book, That I May Dwell Among Them, focuses on the tabernacle texts of Exodus 25 through 40. What drew you to write about this section of Scripture? Gosh, well, there's kind of two uh, explanations, I think, for this. One is kind of uh, nerdy and probably not in need of great, you know, uh, commentary. But early on in my career, I had a contract to write a commentary on the book of Leviticus for Hermeneia, which I never finished. Uh, part of the reason I never finished was because of the tabernacle narrative, because I began with Levit Leviticus 1.1, which everybody has to do, and instantly saw that Leviticus 1.1 made no sense without understanding Exodus chapter 40. And so I was off to the races trying to establish the context of Leviticus 1.1 and never got back to Leviticus. So that would be uh, one answer to it. I think I was also very interested in uh, the Bible's notion of what it means to approach God, uh, which I think is the deep subject matter of the book of Leviticus. And uh, for religiously inclined readers, especially Jewish readers, for whom Leviticus uh, remains a very important book, uh, that is truly uh, the underlying theme um, that informs every you know verse of the book. And I think if you don't have uh, that sensibility about you, um, uh, the book, as well as the tabernacle narrative in Exodus, really, uh, they fall to pieces in the sense of sustaining readers' interest. Uh, but that notion of approaching God, nearness to God, um, was deeply um, attractive to me, and the way in which the Bible 
um, expounds that, you know, provided for me endless, you know, satisfaction. Would you rehearse what you present in chapter three entitled On Seeing God? Yeah, that chapter is really trying to explain, we might want to say, uh, one of the biggest obstacles most um, average lay readers would have when they approach this material in Exodus. That is, when they get to chapter 25 and we get all this architectural detail about the tabernacle, uh, not only once, but twice, uh, it really strains, we might want to say, the imagination and patience of most readers. And I think they may have been committed at one point to getting through the Bible in a year, uh, but I fear many stop here. They perhaps think that the genre of this literature is similar to the instructions that would come with furniture you buy at Ikea or Walmart or or what have you. Um, so uh, what I try to do in chapter three, I try to argue in the book that there's actually two main foci in the tabernacle narrative. One has to do with sacrificial service. Uh, that doesn't need too much explanation. Uh, but the other has to do with what I call seeing God, and that does require some explanation. Um, the notion uh, that undergirds this is very deep in the ancient Near East, but very much a part of the Bible, uh, that God truly resides within this building. And as a result of what we might call his real presence there, his presence invades and uh, seeps into every piece of the tabernacle, and the things that are closest to where he resides, uh, in a sense, absorb the most uh, of that aura. And then as a result, you know, worshipers, when they come to the temp temple or tabernacle, uh, you know, enjoy, we might want to say, that reflected presence of God uh, by contemplating uh, the structure in which he lives. Of course, the average Israelite could not enter within the tabernacle, but I think, at least for me, that's what informs the extraordinary interest in its um, minute, minute description uh, in these chapters, is through a reading, the act of reading. It is, as it were, uh, the lay Israelite who has no access to the inside of that building uh, can enter in at the level of um, its textual detail. And um, it's very important to, I think, the informed, we might want to say, pious Israelite, again, for the purposes I already mentioned. Uh, God really dwells in that building, and so everything in that building pulsates with God's character. If I could give maybe just one very quotidian, maybe uh, almost uh, silly parallel to this, but I've often used it in class— if you watch, I think one of the more touching things you can see on YouTube is to watch a basketball player like Stephon Curry or LeBron James uh, hand a pair of tennis shoes or maybe even one tennis shoe to some adoring, you know, uh, adolescent or, you know, 10 or 12 year old in the audience. You can just see them uh, just <laughs> wax euphoric in receiving the shoe. Well, uh, why does the shoe have such value? I mean, if you just took a shoe off the assembly line from Nike or Adidas, of course, the kid wouldn't, you know, make anything of it. But this is a shoe, of course, that LeBron or Stephon Curry wore. And it, it, it's not an ordinary shoe. It's left the quotidian everyday realm of shoes and entered the space of a basketball superstar. And it's been transformed forever. 
And uh, if you just carry that over to the tabernacle, I think within ancient Israel, you have the same sense about this building. You know, God Almighty, he who spoke and created the world, you know, has taken up residence within this building. Uh, if you think that tennis shoe is really incredible, well, you should see the tabernacle. And so uh, I spend a lot of time on that book, uh, on that feature in the book, because, uh, again, I think it's an element of the spirituality of the tabernacle that's lost on readers. And maybe to give a more serious, we might want to say, parallel to this, uh, the attraction of the Western Wall and contemporary Judaism in Israel uh, might be a close, you know, analogous here. There is no temple, uh, but Jews can come and pray at the wall uh, that used to adjoin or abut the temple. Uh, and that high kind of spiritual regard for an element of divine presence still in those rocks, that's very much part of the Zion hymns and the Psalms. And I think that's the deep structure, no pun intended, uh, to the literary fabric of the tabernacle narrative. In a later chapter, you make the significant point that contrary to many popular readings, Israel's sacrificial system was not only about atonement. This is especially the case with the Tamid, the regular whole burnt offering. Would you talk about the role and significance of the Tamid in the Hebrew scriptures? Yeah, here we have something of a problem because it's, I think, the most important sacrifice uh, within Israel's sacrificial order, uh, but in terms of its textual prominence, number of verses devoted to it, uh, it you know, it certainly it just doesn't measure up. But its significance we can see in a couple of ways. First of all, in chapter twenty-nine, which kind of brings at least to initial closure uh, the tabernacle narrative with the ordaining of the priesthood, and at the end of that chapter, the mentioning of God indwelling the building. Uh, that indwelling of the building is conditioned on, according to that chapter, uh, the onset of the Tamid sacrifice. The Tamid is the morning and evening sacrifice that took place, you know, every day of the year. Um, and uh, that sacrifice will begin and it will be mentioned in Leviticus 9, uh, but uh, almost as an afterthought. So I think many readers don't appreciate its structural significance in Exodus 29 uh, because it doesn't occupy uh, a space that reflects uh, its importance. And also in Exodus 29, uh, there's no commentary as to what it means. There's simply, we might want to say, a recipe as to how to offer it but there's no explanation as to uh, why one would do so or what meaning one ought to derive from it. So we have to you know, come at that from other elements within the Bible. Uh, so those would be two reasons why it's ignored, but we can certainly see its significance when we turn to a book like Daniel, for example, uh, as uh, that writer recounts the destruction of the temple and the cessation then of sacrificial activity, he can summarize that you know entire tragic affair uh, simply by calling it the cessation of the Tamid and the hope for, uh, and we'll see this in later Jewish sources as well, uh, the restoration of the Tamid. That's the offering uh, that will be referred to. So the stopping of the Tamid, and the restoration of the Tamid and Daniel and post-Danielic literature uh, indicate, you know, its um, supreme importance. Gary, how would you say the tabernacle narratives inform the New Testament understanding of the Incarnation? So 
there's a couple of ways. I mean, within the New Testament, most obviously, or the most obvious place we might want to say to turn uh, would be John's gospel, um, especially the prologue famously, uh, where uh, we read that the word uh, dwelt among us and we saw his glory um, that dwelt among us in Greek, skenoo, as New Testament scholars and even patristic writers have long recognized, is a technical term from the tabernacle narrative, meaning to tent among Israel. So to dwell is a perfectly fine translation, but um, the Greek shows us that the kind of dwelling is predicated on figurally, we might want to say typologically, uh, the dwelling that took place uh, in the tabernacle boat back in the book of Exodus. And just as in the book of Exodus, God indwells the tabernacle, not just to have a you know home there, but to make his glory, the kavod Adonai, uh, visible so that the people can see it and then bow down in adoration. And that's exactly what uh, the prologue uh, does as well. So we get the indwelling and then the appearance of the doxa in Greek, the uh, glory of the Lord. And then, you know, in John's gospel, the utilization of temple imagery to depict Jesus is just shot through the whole book. He's almost like a walking temple. I mean, to just pick one example, during the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself as the living water. And again, as New Testament scholars have long noted, in the tabernacle rituals, not in the Old Testament, but we know from the Mishnah, from later Jewish sources, there was a uh, water drawing ceremony uh, where water was brought up and poured uh, at the Temple Mount. And so when Jesus identifies himself as the living water, that's the background against which uh, those words are meant to be understood. So we have this deep understanding of Jesus uh, being similar uh, or being analogized to a temple that continues into the patristic period. And I spend, you know, a lot of time on that. And then also in the in that chapter of my book, I turn to the figure of um, the Blessed Virgin Mary also as a temple in the sense that in her womb, she holds uh, the second person of the Trinity. Again, among the fathers of the church, uh, that became, you know, a figure that just cried out for uh, temple explanation. Uh, sometimes my Protestant readers get worried here that this is uh, a direction of the book that's going too closely in a Catholic direction, but I really try to make the point whenever I speak about this that uh, everything that happens in these sources is deeply indebted to script the principle of sola scriptura. In other words, the Old Testament has lots of things to say about, you know, how dangerous it is to approach God, to uh, God help us, hold God, hold God in your womb, um, and uh, that per buildings, for example, that hold God are forever transformed. Um, that's, I think, what happens. That's what generates, we might want to say, this reverence for Mary's person in the early church. It's not uh, a reverence for her, you know, simply put. Uh, but it's a reverence for her as the site of the refracted glory of the sun. So um, a point that's frequently made in uh, Catholic thinking is that Mariology, that is the study of Mary, is always just the study of Christology, because whatever glory uh, is going to be attached to her person is always the reflected glory uh, of the divine son uh, she bore. And all of that then gets tied to the temple. So everything that 
true about the temple, then uh, can be transferred to her as well. Before we let you go, would you tell us about any current projects we can look forward to reading? Uh, yeah, like I always have my hand in you know several different things. Um, one project that's interested me for some time that you know I've been able to make a little bit more headway on is um, the relationship of the Book of Tobit to the Book of Isaiah. Um, uh, I'm especially interested in the way in which uh, Tobit is portrayed as a kind of suffering servant. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't want to claim that within the book of Tobit, he is the, as it were, predicted suffering servant from Isaiah. But I think that the uh, figure of the suffering servant that comes out in Isaiah is deeply influential uh, in the way in which uh, Tobit uh, and his wife, uh, Hannah, are uh, characterized. And um, anyway, so that would be, that's one thing I've, I've wanted to do, a good example of interbiblical exegesis, you might want to say. Uh, in a deuterocanonical work. I'm also very interested in the narratives of forgiveness in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. As you may know, I wrote a book on sin, which was a book primarily about metaphors. Uh, I did discuss narrative, but not at length that perhaps I should have or that the stories themselves deserve. Uh, and I'd like to go back to that project, and uh, I have about, uh, I have a half dozen, I may end up with about 10, uh, you know, what I view to be illustrative narratives about people who sin and, the, and then are forgiven, and what's the dynamic, what's the process there, what, what might we learn as uh, Christian readers uh, from those biblical examples. Gary, it's been a delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.